Welcome to Historical Jesus. I'm Mark Vinette. Who authored the four main books or Gospels of the New Testament? Let's investigate this conundrum alongside the good folks of the Pints with Aquinas program. Pseudepigrapher is a false writer okay. in Greek. If yeah. you're dealing with a charlatan or yes. somebody who's trying to fake it, they're going to try to make claims that call attention to themselves. But what you find throughout the Gospels is little details that, upon further research, suddenly make sense only within that Jewish culture of the first century. Is that what you mean by circumstantial evidence? Yes, absolutely. There is a throwaway couple of verses in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 14, 51 and 52. It says that there was a young man following Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. And when the guards show up, they grasped him, they seized him, but he was wearing a single linen garment, nothing but a single linen garment. And he slipped out of his linen garment and he ran away naked. It's like two verses. Mark 14, 51, 52. It's like nothing precedes it, nothing follows up. It's like, what the heck is that all about? You know, this teenage streaker photobombs the shooting of the, of the Passion of the Christ, you know? Right, right. You know, it's just like a, like a literary photobomb with a streaker. So what is going on there? Well, you start doing the research, Matt, and you find out that this young man is wearing a single linen garment. Now, linen was expensive. So if you're wearing linen, you're wealthy. But wearing a single garment was a sign of poverty, like a slave. So it's a paradox. Why would somebody with the wealth to wear linen be only wearing a single garment? Well, one class or sect of Jews actually dress this way, and it's the Essenes. The Essenes are the sect of Jews that we know about from Josephus and from the Dead Sea Scrolls because they had a monastery on the shores of the Dead Sea, left us the Dead Sea Scrolls. And from their own writings and from Josephus's writings, we know that they only wore linen because it was a ritually pure fabric associated with the priesthood, and yet they practiced extreme poverty of dress. They would wear the same garment until it wore out. So you have this little tidbit of this guy strangely dressed. It's a throwaway line. It doesn't call attention to itself. But church tradition tells us that that young man is John Mark himself, the author of the gospel. And that's also the best explanation for why those verses would even be in there. If it was somebody else, the author wouldn't share that kind of shameful incident, but it's kind of an act of humility that he pencils himself into his own painting, like Rembrandt used to do a little self-portrait in the corner of his painting. And so you have this little tidbit where the author is slyly tipping his hand, showing his identity, letting you know, I was actually actually there. I was a teenager at the time. This is where my life intersected with that of Jesus, giving us cultural information that's very strange and only fits into a certain time period. Because the Essenes who dressed this way, they were all destroyed in the year 70, along with the temple. Their movement came to an end. So this kind of cultural manner of dress only really was significant and fit into the culture of a certain time period. Again, little details like that, that mesh very well into a culture that lasted just a matter of decades and a few generations, which is indeed the time period that these documents are claiming to represent, that really speaks powerfully to me. Can you give us some more examples? Yes, absolutely. In John 5, the author mentions that Jesus performs a healing at the porticos of Bethesda, or the twin pools of Bethesda, which he mentions were surrounded by five porticos. 
Now, prior to the 1950s, a lot of scholars thought this was completely fictitious because no such area in the vicinity of Jerusalem was known or had been discovered, and they thought it was some kind of symbolism like the two pools or the father and the son and the, mm. the five porticos or some reference to the books of Moses or, you know, so some kind of symbolic theological statement. Well, in about the middle of the 20th century, they're doing excavations in the area of Jerusalem and they discover these pools. There were two massive cisterns that were venerated both by pagans and by Jews for healing properties. The pagans attributed it to the god of healing Asclepius, and the Jews attributed it to God. And as far as the five porticos, that was regarded as fictitious because it was imagined that this was a pentagonal structure and no pentagon-shaped structures were known from Greco-Roman culture, etc. But when they dug this up, they discovered, no, that's not what's being described. What we have is a rectangle with four sides. And then in the middle of the rectangle, you got a portico dividing this rectangle into two squares. And these two squares surround the two pools. So that's what he means by he says it's five porticos. And I just got back from a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and there's a diorama, uh, like a scale model of Jerusalem from the year about 66 in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And you can see the whole layout of Jerusalem. And sure enough, they've got the five porticos surrounding the two pools of Bethesda. Well, that was completely wiped out in the year 70. So after the year 70, nobody would have known about the existence of those twin healing pools or this unique five porticos and so on. So clearly this is information from somebody who lived at the time of Jesus prior to the destruction of the temple in the year 70 and has these cultural and geographic memories, just as he has this memory of back in the day before the temple was destroyed, you walked in the portico of Solomon during winter. So again, little details. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. On the Gospel of John, I can say another thing about that. There's a lot of unique phrases and terminology in the Gospel of John that a hundred years ago or more was attributed to the influence of Neoplatonism or Greek philosophical currents. Phrases like spirit of truth and sons of light and sons of darkness. And this was thought to be, again, the influence of later Greek dualistic philosophy or Neoplatonism on the author of the Gospel of John. Philosophical movements that post-date the time of our Lord. And so the thought was the Gospel of John is this late fictitious philosophical document. Well, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, scholars were shocked because in the scrolls, particularly in what's called the community rule, which is like the central theological document of the monks that left us the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found all this vocabulary and all these phrases that were otherwise known only from the writings of John the Apostle. 
the Johannine literature of the New Testament. So, sons of light, sons of darkness, spirit of truth, spirit of falsehood, and a whole bunch of other phraseology parallel between the Gospel of John and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, all of the Dead Sea Scrolls were written before the year 70 because the monastery was wiped out at that time. So, what that showed was the language of the Gospel of John, which has typically been targeted as supposedly the most fictitious or the most theological or the most made up of the four Gospels by skeptical scholars. Again, the language of the Gospel of John authentically represents pious, devout, Jewish, religious jargon from the lifetime of Jesus. And we can demonstrate it by comparison with contemporary Mm. documents in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is how pious Jews spoke back then. This is their theological vocabulary. This is the way they thought. And we can demonstrate that from hard literary evidence again, bespeaks the fact that the accounts that we're getting about Jesus in the Gospels were written by contemporaries, by people who knew and understood and reflect and express the cultural patterns and the language of that era. What do you say to the charge that the Gospels were originally anonymous and only later did we put names on them? There's several problems with the anonymous Gospels theory. First of all, we don't have any anonymous manuscripts of the Gospels. All the Gospels that we have that preserve the beginning and the end of the document identify it. Sometimes the identification comes at the end, like at the very end it'll say this is according to Luke, or sometimes it comes at the beginning. There's one copy of Luke that is missing its ending and the beginning doesn't have an inscription, but we presume it would be the kata lukon, or the according to Luke would have come at the end. One ambiguous example okay. that at best might have been anonymous out of hundreds, well thousands really, look at the dates and with so many, we mostly just look at the oldest ones. So, what am I saying? What I'm saying is, you have one possibly unattributed copy of the gospel amidst all of this manuscript evidence, all of which identifies him. And it's not like there's ambiguity. It's not like sometimes we find Mark attributed to John, or sometimes we found mm. John attributed to Luke or something like that. No, it's always Mark. Mark's always Mark. Whoa. It's always caught a Mark on. Luke's always caught a Luke on. That's is the Greek according to is kata. So kata Luke on is according to Luke and John. So that consistency, and that consistency is very strong because when there's ambiguity in the tradition, you usually get diversity of yeah. attribution, right? But none of that. So, our manuscript evidence very strongly supports the authorship of the Gospels. Secondly, people in the ancient world, just as they do today, distrust unattributed information. Everybody wants to know, where is this information coming from? People in the ancient world were the same. They did not trust anonymous documents. So, if somebody's trying to fake or act fictitious, what they would do, and what they in fact did, was at least claim that their fake gospel was from some famous figure like Peter or so on. So we have fake gospels Mm. attributed to Peter. We've got fake gospels attributed to James and stuff like this. But releasing an anonymous gospel is a great way not to gain people's trust and a great way uh, not to be heard because people are going to look at that like, who is this from? Why isn't the person identifying themselves? Why should I trust this? And they're going to discard it. So it's just what we call a priori unlikely In advance, we can say that this is not a strategy that ancient people would have used. And then you bring in the patristic evidence. And, you know, going all the way back to Papias, one of the earliest of the church fathers who lives between like 60 and 110, Mm -hmm. 
AD. So he is born just before Peter and Paul are martyred. So would have been a contemporary of the Apostle John in his later age and some of the other apostles. And in fact, talks about having oral conversations with Matthew and John and the others. And he tells us, for example, that Matthew was the first gospel writer who began to collect the teachings of Jesus in the Hebrew language and so Mm -hmm. on. So our external witness to the authorship of the gospels begins very, very early within the lifetimes of those who would have known the men, and then it continues thereafter. I'm Mark Vinette. Thank you for sharing your time with me. Doctors endorse it. Nutritionists recommend it. And customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HISTORY, that's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y, using the code 30605.